Well, greetings from, uh, from Coram Deo Church. Um, you need to know that, uh, that uh, we extend grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to know that we think of you often. And when we think of you, we think of you with great joy. Uh, we pray for you, remembering you with joy and gratitude in our hearts. Uh, you're not far from our hearts or from our minds, and so uh, we're, we're grateful. And I'm grateful to get to experience um, a time to worship with you this morning. Uh, well, whenever you're asked to preach a guest sermon for a pastor who's taking a few weeks off, the nice thing is you have a little bit of leverage to get to choose a text that you want to preach from, or at least you have that opportunity. And I asked uh, uh, Chris if I could choose my text, and he said yes. And so it's my great privilege to preach to you this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, the very text of Scripture that was instrumental in bringing me to faith uh, when I was in college about 20 years ago. And for those of you who may be relatively new to the Christian faith or to the Bible, Ephesians is a letter written from one of the early leaders of the church. His name was Paul, written to a church in Ephesus, and you can read about his time there in Acts chapter 19, where he spent preaching the gospel, helping the believers to grow in Christ, and ultimately establishing um, a church there, a healthy church there in Ephesus. Now friends, this letter, this passage in this letter specifically, um, was written by Paul as a reminder to the Ephesian believers, and by extension as a reminder to you and to me, of our condition before coming to Christ, and of the power that we now have because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our condition was not um, dire, it was hopeless. We had a hopeless condition. We have no hope apart from the life-giving uh, work of Jesus Christ. And I don't want to say anything more in introduction. I would rather let the text just lead us into the truth this morning. And here are the, as expected, three points um, of this sermon. Okay? The first is that we were dead in sin, and that's verses 1 to 3. And then secondly, we were made alive together with Christ, verses 4 to 9. And then finally, we're being formed for kingdom work. Okay, so we'll go through these points one by one. Okay, so number one, we were dead in sin. And so let me read these first three verses once again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul's very first statement out of the gates is that we are dead in sin. But of course, the question is, what does that mean to be dead in sin? Well, notice there's a lot of action verbs in these verses, right? Uh, the dead are described as walking, as following, as carrying out desires. And so apparently there's a kind of living that's actually some other kind of Death, And I think if you've been around the scriptures a while, you know that what Paul's referring to is a kind of spiritual death because of sin that lives within us. And so what Paul has in mind here is that we are dead to the things of God, even as we're very alive to other aspects of the world around us and, and, and to sin. Okay, it means that we're asleep, insensitive, unable to perceive, to God, uh, perceive God, and unable to respond to the spiritual reality of um, God's kingdom around us. And the reason is because we're in bondage to something. We're in bondage to something else, namely another king and another kingdom. So our condition here that he's describing is doubly bad. We're dead to God and we're enslaved to sin. Okay, so that's kind of like a summary of what he's saying. Let's dig in a little bit more and look at the specifics of the passage. So notice that Paul 
is attributing our bondage to sin to those three great powers that we're probably familiar with, the world, Satan, and our flesh. Let's see each of those three things in these first three verses. So first, it says, we were following the course of this world. Now, our tendency is to be conformed to the image of the culture around us. I think we can all agree that it takes very little effort to be influenced by what's happening in the world around us, and it takes a great amount of strength and willpower and intentionality to resist those uh, forces. So think about it for a minute. Okay, think about it. When was the last time that your phone prompted you to turn notifications off? Probably never done that, right? Okay, or when uh, was the last time an advertisement encouraged you to buy less? Uh, I don't remember that ever happening. When was the last time you were encouraged by someone outside of the church um, to sign your kids up for fewer activities to protect more time for your family? Uh, the world is not pushing you in a neutral way, it, or, or is not neutral. It is pushing you in a certain direction. It takes effort to resist the world. So the world is part of this, um, this kind of life before Christ, um, and it is influencing us. Okay, second, Paul says that the spiritually dead follow the prince of the power of the air. That's in verse 2. Now, it seems clearly to be a reference to Satan, okay, but the words that he's using there are, are kind of interesting, aren't they? Okay, um, so the idea of air seems to be referring to like the entire atmosphere or environment of physical human existence. And the idea of calling him a prince or a ruler is suggesting that he has some rule, some authority over this entire realm of the human existence. And then to call us sons of disobedience is to say that you are sons or maybe citizens of that kingdom that he is ruling. Okay, and then finally, Paul says that we live in the passions of our flesh. So we've seen the world, Satan, and now our flesh. We live in the passions of our flesh. And by flesh, in this part of Scripture, Paul is referring to our fallen, sinful human nature. It includes the kind of obvious sins of the body and desires, things like laziness or gluttony, greed or lust, and then some of the more less, less, less obvious things, the sins of the mind, uh, pride or resentment unforgiveness, willful ignorance. Okay, so pulling all of this together then, uh, the point is that spiritual death is bondage or slavery. And notice the passive language here. It's, he says, we follow the world and the spirit of the air. We carry out our sinful desires as if they were controlling us rather than us controlling those desires. So spiritual death is bondage, but it's still, you know, maybe there's more to be said here. What, what, what does that mean? How, how is it the case that spiritual death is some kind of bondage? How does the world, the devil and our flesh, how do these things kind of conspire together to enslave us? And here's what I'd like to say about that. I think this is what Paul would want us to see about this. You follow the world and the devil, and the way that they enslave you is to free you to pursue your own disordered desires. Okay? So the way that you become enslaved is that the world and the enemy free you to pursue your own disordered desires, and thereby you become enslaved to those desires. In verse 3, the word passions is the Greek word epithumia, which just means over-desire. And so what Paul has in mind here is not necessarily bad things, but things that we love more than we should or that are disordered in our priority of affections. So it's, it's good. You know, we maybe a desire to see our kids thrive, a desire to, to have companionship uh, and friendship, 
desire for entertainment or for security. The problem is that these desires consume and ultimately enslave us. So being spiritually dead, we're not able to get free from those things. Now, I I remember this very vividly. I grew up in a a family that went to church, and so I heard a lot of the scriptures growing up. Um, But I remember going off to college and having a lot more freedom, of course, when you go into that environment. I joined a fraternity, had new friends. And I remember having an, an idea in my mind of what I ought to be doing. And yet in this environment, I felt almost powerless, no, powerless, to resist the, 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 the current and the tide of what my flesh wanted to do. I was not free, in many sense, to choose. I felt compelled. I felt like sin was reigning in me. So I felt this, and I wonder if you have too, that sin reigning in you. So if we boil this down, what we're saying is something that's actually quite unpopular. Okay, what I'm trying to say, what Paul is trying to say, is that the problem is inside of you. The problem is in you, and this is not very popular. In fact, it's the opposite of what usually we're hearing in the world today. So consider this. Okay? According to the modern view of, of things, there are problems out there, but if you can look far enough, deep enough within, you will find the solutions to those problems. So the problem is those people, those policies, those structures, those, uh, those parties, whatever it is, But if you can look far enough inside, you will find solutions to those things. I mean, it's the script of every Disney movie that me and my kids watch together, right? I love Moana. I love it. But that's exactly the thing, right? There's something corrupting the world out there. But if if she can look far enough within, she will find some way to save not only herself but the world. Okay, friends, the biblical view is the exact opposite. The biblical view is that the problem is in me. And the only hope that I have is to find some source of salvation outside of myself. But think about it this way. The very thing that Paul is describing here as the root of our spiritual death, namely being freed to pursue our own desires. Okay, that root of spiritual death, according to Paul, is actually the vision of the good life that we're commonly told today, Right? The vision of the good life today is to free you from any non-chosen constraint, right? And so the very vision of the good life that that you might be be tempted to to think is what Paul is saying is the root of spiritual slavery and death. Okay, so to thrive in this world, we need a different view of those things, okay? All right, well, notice the final blow then in these first few verses. The final blow in Paul's description of our condition without Christ is that the wages of our slavery... To sin has, has, has put us under the wrath of God. Okay, so consider the terribly bleak picture of these first three verses. Okay, we are one. We are dead, asleep, unresponsive to God. Seeing we do not see, hearing we do not hear, and dead people do not rise. Number two, we were enslaved to a rival king in whose kingdom we're ruled by disordered, selfish desires. And even... If we wanted freedom, slaves have no power to redeem themselves. Okay, and then third, we are under the wrath of God, and that debt is such that we could never imagine paying for it on our own. This is a terribly bleak picture at the end of verse 3. But the second point here is that we are made alive together with Christ. So in other words, Paul does not leave us in despair, but he has penned for us in verse the two greatest words in all of the Scriptures. He says, but God, but God. God has been breathing life into lifeless things since Genesis 1, has he not? 
This is what God does. He breathes life into dead things. Remember Jesus' famous words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. So in our spiritual death, no one can enter or see God's kingdom. But Jesus is saying to Nicodemus that there's a way to become awakened, newly awakened to spiritual reality, to see the kingdom. And it is, of course, to be born again. And like Nicodemus, we read that and we should be left wondering, wait, how can that be? How can a person be born again? And Paul is giving the answer to that question right here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. And the answer to that is, you're born again by becoming united with Christ. Union with Christ is the answer. So let's read these verses uh, and then let's dig into what it means to be united with Christ and how that helps us. Okay, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, all the commentators on this verse that are looking at the Greek and making their observations based on the original language, they all notice that Paul is inventing three new terms here that don't appear anywhere else in all of Greek literature. What he does is he takes the Greek word, the Greek uh, prefix, sin, which means together with, and combines that with three verbs or descriptions of what God did to Jesus after his resurrection. And the result is these three new terms that essentially mean Make alive together with. Raise up together with. And sit down together with. These are union with Christ words. He made these words up because there was no existing words that can communicate such grand ideas of being united with God himself. And so Paul makes up these words. Okay? Now, uh, Rankin Wilburn, in his excellent book called Union with Christ that I highly recommend to you, he summarizes the doctrine of union with Christ in these simple words. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. Okay, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. This is a very simple phrase, but the implications are absolutely staggering. Okay, And what we want to do is we want to see how how these, these truths, these simple words of union with Christ, how that relates to the predicament that Paul describes in verses 1 to 3. Namely, the fact that we were dead, enslaved, and under the wrath of God. How does union with Christ deal with those problems of the person apart from Christ? Okay, so the first is, problem is, you're dead. No perception of spiritual things. Okay, but if you are in Christ, with Christ in his resurrection then you share in his eternal life. You are a partaker in his life. And Christ in you means that he is animating your lifeless spirit, giving, giving you ears to hear, eyes to see. So where your dead ears and dead eyes were unable to perceive, his resurrection life in you, union with him means that you now have life where you had no, 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 no life before. I can't help but think of one of my favorite movies, uh, The Matrix. And uh, in the film, as you may know, most humans are living their entire existence in a virtual reality, completely unaware of the true reality, which is 
that they are basically being farmed, harvested by machines uh, in order to be part, basically get energy from their bodies. Okay? All right, and so do you remember what Neo says when he is brought out of the matrix and for the first time he is in the real world? He opens his eyes and he says, why do my eyes hurt? And they say to him, because you've never used them before. You've never used those eyes before. He'd been seeing his entire life, but he'd never seen with his real eyes. Friends, unless you're born again, unless you are united with Christ in his resurrection, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You have not ever used your real spiritual eyes. Well, the second problem that we identified before is uh, about being enslaved. Now, does union with Christ offer us any hope? Those of us who are enslaved to the world, the devil in our flesh, and of course, the answer is yes. Of course it does. Okay, think about it. What does it mean that Christ sat down? In the text it says, we are seated with Christ. Well, what does it mean? Sat down? That's kind of odd. Well, it's referring to this theological concept of the session of Christ. And that just means it's Christ's ascension to heaven, his being seated at the right hand of the Father to rule over um, all of creation and to, to subdue his enemies. So that's what it means by Christ being set down. Okay, victorious over the prince of the power of the air. And so therefore, okay, if that's the case, and we are with Christ in his being seated, um, if you're in Christ, this means that you are in some mysterious way already seated with Jesus in the eternal kingdom. Even as you walk the street and go to work and change diapers, you share in his victory over Satan and sin even now at this moment. And if Christ is in you, then the power that raised Christ from the dead is in you too and operates in you. And you now have resources to fight the sin that previously enslaved you. Uh, look at how Paul describes this to a different church in Rome, in, cha- in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. He says, We were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So pause there. Okay, and note how our new life is dependent on the resurrection of Christ in that verse. Do you see it? Okay, going on in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Christ in you, union with Christ, means freedom. What sin? Oh, friend. What sin? Uh, what, what idol? What, what even addiction that you um, experience can hold on to you if the voice that raised Jesus from the dead calls you his son or his daughter and says you are no longer a slave? What power could possibly hold on to you if that voice speaks such freedom and identity to you? None. New life means we're free from the bondage to sin. Well, finally, what about that problem of God's wrath? Does union with Christ say something about this? How how do these things connect? Well, the resurrection of Christ is the evidence, of course, that the wrath of God was fully satisfied, was fully paid for. It's the proof that the Father has accepted the atoning sacrifice of Christ, that the penalty for sin has been paid in full, and therefore to be in Christ... In his resurrection means that God's wrath is satisfied. 
You are in Christ. And so therefore, when you stand before the Father, the Father, the judge, you are not seen as you, but you are seen with the clothes, the righteousness of Christ. Being in Christ and him being in you solves the problem of the wrath of God. Okay, so union with Christ. Union with Christ. What a beautiful, powerful, um, a freeing doctrine this is. It was uh, this thought about union with Christ in Charles, that inspired Charles Wesley, the famous hymn writer, to write, Soar we now where Christ has led, following our exalted head. Made like him, like him we rise, ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Okay, so let's summarize the contrast here that Paul's making, and then we'll make one final point, okay? Uh, the contrast so far that we're seeing is being spiritually dead, unable to perceive reality, versus being born again, given new eyes, being able to be sensitive to the things of God. Slavery, sin reigning in us, versus freed from sin, God reigning in us. Being under God's wrath versus covered in Christ's perfect and complete work on our behalf. These are the contrasts of life before Christ and life being united with Christ. At the end of verse 7, the offer we have then sounds like this, okay, that those who are dead can be born again by union with Christ. That's the offer that's being extended here in, the, in these first verses. And what an invitation it is. And you might be saying, yes, yes, Union with Christ. I want to be united with Christ. I want this life. I want this freedom. I would, I would do anything to gain this life that you speak of. I'd fast and pray every day. I'd give up, uh, give up drinking. What do I need to do? I need to give up all my possessions and give them to the poor. Tell me, what must I do to be saved? And the answer, of course, is in the text. It's nothing. The answer to that question is you must receive. It is a gift of grace. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not, a, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. All the benefits of union with Christ that we've been describing are ours purely by grace through faith. The bridge between the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and our dead spirits is faith, supported and nurtured by his grace. It's not effort. It's not morality. It is grace. Why? Why would he do it that way? That's so counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense to any of us. Why? By grace through faith. Well, the text gives us a, us a, couple, a couple answers to that question. Let's look at them real briefly, okay? Uh, first, um, why, why are we saved by grace through faith? Friend, you were dead. Dead people don't work their way out of the grave. We have nothing to give. That's reason number one. Okay, number two, it says, God is rich in mercy and love in verse four. Those who are rich and generous delight to lavish their grace on other people, and the Father in heaven is no different. Okay, thirdly, notice the phrase in verses eight and nine, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. Okay, if salvation could be earned, then you would be able to put God in your debt. Okay? We do this and that. We perform these tasks. We obey in this way. We serve, we give, and God owes us. But listen, does the God who created subatomic particles that are whizzing around in the trillions of trillions of atoms in this room at the speed of light right now, the God who created the billions 
of stars in our galaxy, in the billions of stars, in the billions of other galaxies that we know about, does that God sound like someone that you could put in your debt? Does that sound like someone who might owe you something? Absolutely not. You would never be able to put that God in your debt. And therefore, the only way of salvation is by grace. There's no way that he could owe us. There's no way that salvation could be given in a way that we would be able to boast before God. Okay. Well, we need to look at verse 10, though. So the third thing is, after being united with Christ, then he liberates us to do kingdom work. So verse 10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We receive new life as a free gift of grace, not by our good works. That's clear. But right here, the very next verse, it's always interesting to me, the very next verse, right after verses 8 and 9, he says, you're created for good works. He's essentially saying, being united with Christ by grace, now you're free to do the work that really matters. And look at the words, look at the words that he's using to describe this in verse 10. The workmanship, workmanship. Okay, the idea that the, the new birth is beginning a process, a lifelong process of creating you into something. It's workmanship. It's over a long time. He says, good works which God prepared beforehand, indicating, I think, that, our, that we're being grafted into this eternal, mysterious plan that God has been crafting for eternity past. Imagine a master craftsman of old, maybe a, a carpenter or a blacksmith, who's wanting to apprentice his son into the craft. He's preparing him. Even before that son knows that he's being prepared, the good uh, uh, master is preparing him for that work. And in the same way, God is preparing us over a long period of time. And then notice he describes this work as walking. Walking. It's normal. Every day, not glamorous kinds of things. It's the Romans 6 idea of yielding your members in very ordinary ways to righteousness and to the things of God. This is what it means to be working for the kingdom. Here's the image that stirs in me, friends. Here's the, here's the image that comes to mind to me, okay? That God is bringing his kingdom. He's bringing his kingdom. Now, every other kingdom, every earthly kingdom advances and conquers through power, ambition, and violence toward enemies, right? Every other kingdom advances through power, ambition, violence. But this new reign is something entirely different. It's advance not by power, but by embracing weakness. Not by ambition, but by self-sacrifice. And not by subduing enemies, but by loving them and even dying for them. Now, who could possibly be useful in advancing that kind of kingdom? Who could possibly work to contribute in that kind of kingdom? And in fact, who would ever sign up for it? Die to yourself? Live for others, rejoice in weakness, love your enemies, pray for those who are persecuting. Who would ever sign up for that kind of thing? Only those. Only those who, uh, who have, been receive, have received that kind of treatment from someone else. Only those, in other words, who have been transformed by the gospel of grace could be useful in building that kind of kingdom built on self-sacrifice and love and service. So think of it this way. So to the extent that you're convinced that everything you truly need has been given to you already, you can willingly give up your time and status and money in order to serve others. To the extent that you are overwhelmed with gratitude for receiving mercy, knowing how much you needed that mercy, 
And when you, uh, when you were God's enemy, they said that you know that you've received God's mercy when you were God's enemy, you can extend that mercy to those who harm you as well. To the extent that you experience new life, freedom, and power through your union with the risen Christ, you'll be free to embrace your weakness. Saying with Paul, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So when Paul says that we are God's workmanship created for good works, he means uh, we become more useful in God's kingdom the more we appropriate and believe and live out the gospel of grace, the more that we can take that reality into our soul. Well, let me conclude very briefly with a couple points of application to um, a few groups that I I have in mind that are surely represented in this room. Uh, First, I imagine that there are some here who have been uh, standing just outside of this new life that Paul is describing in this text. Um, Perhaps maybe even like longingly looking into this kind of new life that's offered in the gospel. But something seems to be in the way. Something we find ourselves thinking, maybe uh, I need to get over that behavior. I need to master that sinful habit before I can jump into this kind of born-again Christian thing. I need to kind of get a handle on this area of life. Uh, But friend, you need to hear something. You need to hear something from the scripture this morning. Um, You're not weak. You're dead. Um, you're you're, You're worse off than you think. You do not have the power to solve that problem apart from Christ. But you're also better off than you think because you don't need to. That's not a prerequisite of coming to him to be born again. Or maybe the barrier is not some issue you feel like you need to solve or some behavior you need to get over. But perhaps it's just difficulty in believing grace because it's so counterintuitive. Difficulty seeing how the pieces uh, fit together. Maybe the Lord's at work in your soul, awakening things, but there's still some, some blindness there. That's my story. Okay, I, I was raised, like I said, in the church, but I didn't hear a lot about the gospel of grace. Uh, there was a lot of talk about performance. And um, of all places, I met some guys in my fraternity who were having Bible studies and reading passages just like this and telling me about grace. And for the first time, I was hearing the gospel. But friends, I, it was so ingrained in me that I needed to perform my way into God's good graces that it took years. It took several years. Okay, I was a senior in college Uh, reading my Bible, reading this passage in my room late at night one night. I had read this passage at least 20 times before. I'm not kidding. I had read this so many times, and somehow a spiritual blindedness had kept me from seeing the gospel of grace. And in this evening, though, the scales were peeled off my eyes, and I saw grace. Grace for the first time from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And so maybe it's just a bit of spiritual blindness, and I pray that God would Take those scales away from your eyes as well. Well, a second word of application or admonition. This passage offers both a rebuke and an encouragement to those of us who are united with Christ but are struggling with what seems like bondage to idols, to sins. Perhaps your need for control continues to lead you to um, outbursts of anger at your children or at your spouse. Maybe your love of comfort and escape Continue to cause you to look at things on the internet that a Christian has no business looking at. Or perhaps it's festering resentment or an unwillingness to forgive a friend or family member who's hurt you in the past. Brother or sister, it may feel like bondage to you, but you are not a slave. You are not a slave to those sins. You are in the risen Christ, and he is in you, and therefore you have resurrection power working in you. And so my word to you, Paul's word to you this morning is, be freed. 
You are free. Live in that freedom. In fact, I would like to leave you um, with the way that Paul says this to the Romans church. In chapter 6, he says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That's great news. You are freed in Christ as you are united with him. Please pray with me.